Our last podcast of 2018 is going to sound a lot like the previous podcasts. Indictments, breaches, and social media mishaps galore. We have our nerdiest interview of the year as well, where we talked to Chad Seaman from Alchemy about some router vulnerability research he recently published. Breaches from coffee shops to the highest reaches of our atmosphere. What else would you expect? Securiosity starts now. Welcome to Securiosity for December 21st. I am Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel, ready to wrap up another year of InfoSec news. And even with the holidays bearing down on us, it still was a busy week in the InfoSec world. And you thought we wouldn't have anything to talk about. Never a dull moment, even as 2018 comes to a close. Let's get right to it. The Justice Department unsealed charges against two hackers linked with China's civilian intelligence agency for the repeated efforts to steal intellectual property. The campaign targeted more than 45 companies in a dozen countries, including sectors ranging from aviation to pharmaceuticals, along with the U.S. Navy and NASA. The defendants also allegedly stole the social security numbers and other personal information of over 100,000 Navy personnel, U.S. officials said. The announcement Thursday comes amid ongoing tensions between the U.S. and China on cybersecurity, technology, trade, and national security matters. The charges have been expected for weeks as U.S. officials have ramped up pressure on Beijing, including through a new Justice Department initiative focused exclusively on combating alleged Chinese economic espionage. Greg, these were the charges you were talking about last episode, right? Yes, we thought they were going to come out last week, but uh, they were delayed a little bit, came out on Thursday. And these, this was pretty wide-ranging only because not only did the U.S. come out against this, they did this with some international partners. The Five Ice countries are in on this. Japan is in on this. I believe Finland is even on this. Brazil. Uh, this was as close as I've seen or can remember to an international effort going against Chinese economic espionage. And yeah, I mean, it was very, very wide ranging into what China hit here. There were some reports that they hit managed service providers like IBM and HP, obviously the Navy, NASA. There's some other companies that weren't named. I mean, this group, which was APT10, uh, also known as CloudHopper, has been really, really active. We've talked about them before because there have been some stories that have come out earlier this year on what exactly they've done and how much the U.S. Justice Department has been weighing on them. So this was a big blow to the the already damaged relations between uh, the U.S. and China. Did China respond or do you think they will if they haven't? Uh, they actually have a little bit. There has been some stories that have already come out through China's uh, English-speaking newspapers, which is just basically propaganda arms of the Chinese government, uh, saying that, no, in fact, that APT-10 is an equation group, which we longtime listeners know that that is uh, code for the NSA. So uh, very, very interesting that China has already started to try to combat this through propaganda means. But um, yeah, uh, this is another turn of the wheel in the downward spiral of relations between U.S. and China. I mean, this is pretty heavy handed. And I think that the U.S. just I think that the U.S. Justice Department was right in being heavy handed because these guys have been just wrecking stuff left and right for years. Wow. 
So speaking of China, Twitter says there has been suspicious activity on its platform that may have involved state-sponsored hackers from China and Saudi Arabia. The social media company says it detected an issue on November 15th related to one of its support forums where users contact Twitter to report any problems with an account. Outsiders potentially could view the country code users associated with their accounts and could assess whether an account was locked for violating Twitter's rules. Specifically, we observed a large number of inquiries coming from individuals. The company said specifically, we observed a large number of inquiries coming from individual IP addresses located in China and Saudi Arabia, and no personal information was exposed in the incident, but Twitter's stock... Uh, took a hard nosedive this week, falling about 6.8% after the disclosure. Uh, Jen, who had a worse week in your eyes, Twitter or Facebook? Probably Facebook, but 6.8% for really not disclosing that in data seems like a big drop. Yeah. Uh, this is, I would feel like, co compared to everything that we read about Facebook in the New York Times and all of that reporting about how Facebook is just – not really adhering to their privacy uh, terms of service at all. I mean, that's a massive problem. And I think Facebook also saw a 7% dip in their stock, which I guess that it, that makes sense. Like I can logically follow that. This yeah. isn't even the worst InfoSec problem Twitter has had this year. And yet they saw a 7% drop in their stock from this. I mean – it, it, the, the market, I think, is being heavy-handed there a little bit compared Probably, with all yeah. the other things that we've yeah. talked about. Yeah, yeah really interesting. Yeah. Um, look, social media just overall, I, I, I can't remember a worse stretch for social media than these past, like, three or four weeks. Like, it seems it's almost like twice – it felt like this week it was like every eight hours there was another just cripplingly damaging story – for Facebook and what they've been doing privacy-wise with data. You know, it, it's just it, – it's staggering to me just how much has gone wrong from a PR perspective for these social media companies because it wasn't too long ago when this stuff was like ushering in a, a new wave for humanity. <laughs> it's just I mean, all look, gone the complete yeah, opposite direction. I mean it's, it's not built on privacy and the general person just doesn't really care that much. So – Chen Micro, also in the news, um, so researchers found a piece of malware that takes instructions from hidden messages embedded in memes on Twitter. Interesting. So hackers concealed commands in the image code, instructing malware to take and send a screenshot to their command and control servers. The malware was one part of a bigger operation, with other malware needing to already be in place on the victim's computer for the trick to work. It was likely just being tested when the researchers discovered it, as it was also ready to be prompted to perform more advanced recon. Twitter does not host any malicious software in this scheme, so rest assured that browsing the web for memes poses little danger to your computer. This is bound to happen, wasn't it? Yeah, I uh, and I think it was bound to happen from the standpoint of everybody loves memes. I think that that's basically like the 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 joke economy of Twitter is all based in memes. So of course somebody yeah. was going to figure out a way to weaponize those memes. I'm glad that it was caught ahead of time and sharing everything from Doge memes to white guy blinking to confused pigeon and all of that fun stuff 
isn't a disaster for everybody as far as I don't security think I've seen is any concerned. Of those memes yet. Oh, oh my god. <laughs> well, I'm 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 extremely online when it comes to Twitter. So okay. if you get a chance, go check out the artwork that we had for this story. Probably my favorite artwork of the year. Um, okay. But it, it's you know good on Trend Micro for finding this ahead of time before this turned into a bigger problem. I mean, we've seen stories before where images have been weaponized. That was a big part of the VPN filter story that we covered earlier this summer. So this is going to happen. It's a shame that it's happening to memes, but I'm not surprised. It was inevitable. Like, this is the most 2018 story, I feel like. Of course, the malware is hidden in memes. Yeah, I'm surprised it hasn't happened already. So many years and billions of dollars later, federal agencies are still struggling to manage their cybersecurity programs. A new GAO audit is a clear reminder of this as 17 of the 23 civilian agencies reviewed by the watchdog were not effectively implementing cyber programs and had significant information security deficiencies in financial reporting controls. The GAO also found that the Office and Management of Budget had failed to submit important information to Congress regarding the effectiveness of Einstein, the multi-billion dollar federal firewall that everybody in Washington seems to know about but always loves to deride. Jen, this is literally the story that does not end. It really is. And I, I still wonder to myself, can we just not afford to hire really good cybersecurity people in these agencies? I don't think necessarily it's always the people side of things. Actually, I lie. There is, a, there, there, there is a lot to do with that, and it has a lot to do with just the budgetary concerns well, of the federal yeah. government. You're never going to get paid a lot of money to go do cybersecurity inside the government. That's right. just the way that things are. But at the same time, like the messages haven't resonated yet like uh, we've talked about these programs for so long whether it's Einstein whether it's Fatara whether it's FISMO whether it's you know uh, IT modernization all the things that you read about in our sister publication FedScoop like we've covered this stuff for years I mean I I feel like I've been watching it for five years and I feel like it's just the hamster wheel like we've been talking about how okay let's upgrade the cyber hygiene and let's get a control of these high value assets and let's worry about shadow IT and look don't get me wrong these are huge huge agencies but at the same time there there needs to be just a better baseline of what's happening. If it's agencies with any valuable information to this country, we should see it as a crisis and we should spend the money on hiring at the very least consultants to come in and at least baseline everything um, so we can move forward properly. Right. And I think that a lot of this goes back to the Einstein part of this and what I said earlier. I just don't know a lot of people that are happy with the Einstein technology. They call it old. They say it doesn't – not that it necessarily doesn't work, but there are so many other tools out there that do such a better job of what Einstein is capable of. Of doing so, there are a lot of people, even on Capitol Hill. I think a lot about the conversations that Will Hurd has had over the years in saying the government shouldn't even be building this stuff. Just go out and buy it. Just go out and buy the right tools that we need to sit on the systems and let the tools do the job. And that way, we don't have to worry about paying people, you know, triple what a, a government worker could make or is supposed to make along those guidelines. Um, it, it just seems like the, the answers are there and it, 
it goes back to what you were saying with the people. It's not just necessarily getting the right people, but having those people execute on what is already in front of them. Well, something's missing in the training. So speaking of problems at um, agencies, um, NASA says it was hacked earlier this year, according to a memo sent to employees on Tuesday. The space agency said on an unauthorized user access to server containing social security numbers and personal identification information on current and former employees. An investigation is ongoing, though NASA says it does not believe any agency missions were jeopardized by the cyber incident. NASA civil service employees, NASA civil service employees who joined the agency separated from the agency or were transferred between NASA centers between July 2006 and October 2018 may have been affected according to the internal memo. It's kind of a wide window of data. Yeah, that's a lot of people. Um, this one kind of flew under the radar because of all the other news that went on this week. Um, it was part of the indictments that we talked about uh, atop the episode. Um, I'm, I'm staggered that they can't put a number on this. July 2006 to October 2018. That 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 window's huge. I mean, How we're talking of for 12 years and not know it. Yeah, I I um I'm at a loss for words. Like, there's just tens of thousands of employees that now need to worry about this, and that's already on top of the fact that if we're talking about July 2006 to the end of 2015, you're talking about somebody that has already been affected by the OPM breach as well. So they have to go through this entire process again. Like it gets to be exhausting. And if it gets to be exhausting, you get to you get to eventually have blinders about it and you begin to ignore everything. And that's when you're really at risk for something to happen, whether it is identity theft or, you know, something worse. Like it, it's just this does not help at all. It's bad. So the Russian disinformation campaign that sowed havoc in the 2016 U.S. election is still ongoing and more far-reaching than previously understood, according to two reports commissioned by the Senate Intelligence Committee that came out earlier this week. The St. Petersburg-based troll farm known as the Internet Research Agency sought to discharge African Americans from voting in the presidential election and more recently have targeted Hispanics, one of the reports concluded. The other study found that Instagram also was a potent weapon for the Russians, reaching more Americans after researchers began to understand propaganda on Twitter. Jen, <laughs> again, I'm starting to believe the social media stuff is a mess. I mean, honestly, we should all get off social media, I guess. I, I still um, come down to why is anybody getting any sort of news off of Instagram particularly, but also Twitter and Facebook. So let's talk about that getting off of social media. Do you realistically think that you could do that? Because there's been a lot of movement this week with all of the news about Facebook and all of the companies that were looking at what we thought to be private messages on Facebook. There's a lot of talk about people going, you know what, uh, I'm out. I, I, I can't do this anymore. Could you realistically do that? I mean, it could. But, you know, as I look at, you know, Facebook, for example, I mean, it's it's honestly like keeping up with people I went to high school with and like aunts and uncles and cousins and stuff, you know, from elsewhere in the country. I don't use it really for any other purposes. Um, you know, for instance, today, I think I reposted somebody posting the um, service animal chicken that Popeye is now selling at the Philadelphia <laughs> airport. Right? Okay. Like, like that's not interesting. You know, hopefully nobody's reading anything I do seriously. Um, you know, for me, Twitter and Instagram are like an occasional thing. So, yeah, I could get off social media today and not yeah. think about it again. Yeah, and that's it, – it, it's good to hear you 
spin your wheels on that because I've been thinking about it a lot and I don't think I can. And it's not out of a like desire for me to connect with those high school people or my yeah. parents or whatever. Like I have a phone. I could just text these people anyway. It's just part of my job. Like right. I was just saying earlier, yeah. I'm extremely online when it comes to Twitter. I, st- I, I l- still love Twitter even with all of the problems that it that it has. It, it is a tremendous news vehicle. I'm extremely entertained by it when I'm just, you know, messing around on my phone and, and just sure. passing time. Yeah. So I like the product, but it's useful for me in terms of news gathering as well. Facebook obviously drives traffic. Instagram obviously still kind of drives traffic. If I was not in this industry, I would probably just shut it all down. But I I just don't think I can. Which I think is interesting that you would say that. So what kind of news are you gathering? So I'm following all of the researchers. I'm following the companies. I'm just following other people. I'm following policy experts. I'm following uh, elected officials that use it to, you know, disseminate news. But you're following sort of known people that are credible versus things that Russia's going to have. Right. I guess I have honed person. my list. I, yes. I, I guess that that is where the disconnect is, that I know what bots look like. Like I can spot. I mean, you're following specific people and specific publications and specific companies versus like um, – some random person tweeted this out, and I'm like, yeah, oh, like, news story. Yeah, no, I'm not following Facebook.Eagle and MagatrumpTrain.com and, right. and getting yeah. my news from that. Which I think is very different. Yeah. Right, right. And, and yeah, there is an education component that people need to understand uh, that way, and I think there's that. But then also it, ju- it gets into the privacy stuff that has been in the news as well, I don't think that people – look, people don't read their TOS. They don't read their end-user license agreements at all. So I don't think that they had any idea that Facebook was letting Spotify or Netflix or any of these companies actually look at the data that they were supposedly looking at and then beyond the data that Facebook let users know about, like reading the private messages. Like – I mean, I still don't think it's reasonable to think that everything you put on Facebook, including Messenger um, and Twitter, including private messages and your Gmail, isn't for the public realm. I mean, you know you're getting targeted ads when you're in Gmail. You know you get targeted ads when you're on Facebook. If you send something in Messenger about something specific, you're going to have an ad for it in your feed. Right. So I kind of think it's not reasonable. The average person should not think anything they're doing in any of the social media is secure. Right. And it, th- I think the key phrase there is the average person because what you and I have known about this for a long time, I think it's up to the people that aren't necessarily in this all yeah. the time to really come to grips with, okay, this is what we mean when we talk about data being right. shared. Yeah. Like the average person needs to have a little bit more understanding of that. And 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 I don't mean to frame that in the standpoint of this being like victim blaming. I, I don't think that the average user did know up until this point. But I think it's upon them now to maybe make a little bit more effort in understanding the way that all of this works. So Fancy Bear. Can't have a podcast with it unless we're talking about Fancy Bear, right? So Fancy Bear is covering all of its bases for its line of hacking tools, according to new research from Palo Alto Networks. The company's Unit 42 threat intelligence team says that APT28 has been spotted using a version of its Zabrosi Trojan written in the Go programming language in multiple phishing campaigns. 
They are quoted as writing, while we cannot be certain the impetus for this, we believe the threat group uses multiple language to create their Trojans to make them differ structurally and visually to make detection more difficult. Jen, even the hackers are going to find a way to leverage everything they can across multiple cold across multiple code bases. I mean, yeah, nothing about this is surprising. Um, glad they're in the news. <laughs> yeah, they're trying to steal in their spotlight, <laughs> so they have to get in there some way. No, um, this is – Go is like the hot new programming language. I, I, I shouldn't say hot new programming language because somebody's going to rip me on Twitter for saying that. Yeah. Um, it, it, but it's a popular programming language. It's in vogue, let's say. Sure, yeah. Um, so I, I, I think that it's – uh, interesting that even the nation state hackers are reading up on what's going on on Hacker News and going, oh, okay, l- let's try to write this Trojan and this as well along I with I mean, if your job is else. to is to um, hack into people, right, you might as well make it fun and learn something new as you go about it, right? Everyone likes to <laughs> I, I guess, new, right? So why not this? So five companies agreed to revamp their mobile app security as part of a settlement with the New York Attorney General's office. The office found that apps made by Western Union, Priceline, Equifax, Sparks Networks, and Credit Sesame had a well-known security vulnerability that would enable man-in-the-middle attacks, potentially allowing hackers to intercept data, especially on public Wi-Fi networks. Why are you on a public Wi-Fi network? The companies handle data like contact information, login credentials, banking or payment information, and social security numbers. Just the kind of information that could be used for fraud. The AG's office said that the settlement is part of a broader effort to find security flaws in consumer products before they are exploited. Greg, why is anybody on a public Wi-Fi <laughs> first? And um, why does it seem we're kind of lax in securities? And it's just weird. Yeah. Uh, well, so, okay, look, the public Wi-Fi thing, That I think there's still some some good in that because there might be some people that have, you know, one of the cheaper end smartphones and don't necessarily have internet in their house. So they want to use the Wi-Fi that cities provide them. That's, as long as you're not logging into your bank yeah, account, that's that, great. That, yeah, that's, yeah, that's fine. Um, but the regulators watching this, I think, is really, really interesting because – this is a watchdog. I mean, yeah. how many times do we talk about – just think about Equifax. Equifax here, it's something totally separate than the vulnerabilities that they had with their breach. And yet they haven't really fixed stuff across the board. Now, third parties could have created these apps, whatever. Somebody needs to really hold these companies accountable, whether it's the actual app developers or the companies themselves, because this data is important. Like we're talking about Western Union and and in fact, we're talking about credit reporting here, credit sesame, like all these. This is all high value data. If you're going to let people access their high value data on their phones, you need to protect it like it is. Like, it's reminiscent of the high-value data that it is. So how old is this breach that we're referring to? So I don't think it's necessarily a breach as much as it is just a hole found in their their apps that was found so, by an AG's office instead of Mandian or CrowdStrike or guess, Palo Alto right, or something like that. I guess my like point that. being that, you know, certainly Equifax was in the news last year. Um, and given how much they were in the news and how bad their breach was – they should have cleaned house by now. So unless you're saying this this sort of vulnerability was found, you know, last year or the year before, I'd be like, okay. 
But it should be fixed by now. Yeah. Um, it, there's it, no excuse. It, it's why the New York AG's office turned around and said, either you give us some money or we start talking about maybe some other legal avenues. Like, that's why I think this is good. I mean, it's clear that these companies did not do their job. They were negligent security-wise. So it's good that it just the overall law office is getting involved and going, no, wait, well, we found this vulnerability. We should not be finding this vulnerability. You should not have this vulnerability. You need to write us a check because yeah. this is really, really bad. Yeah. So not all of the news this week was bad. Help is on the way for leaders at small and medium-sized businesses that have to contend with cyber threats that would be even a challenge for massive firms with multi-million dollar security budgets and the ability to go to third-party app developers that have multiple vulnerabilities in their apps. Uh, a program led by alumni of President Barack Obama's Cybersecurity Commission was unveiled earlier this week, offering free tools and resources meant to help smaller companies better secure their corporate networks. The plan is for Fortune 500 companies to pass down cybersecurity know-how to companies with only a fraction of the resources, a method that ultimately aims to stop hackers before they can use one company as a foothold to its partners. Uh, Jen, do you think small and medium-sized companies should be listening to the Fortune 500? I mean, I guess it ultimately depends on what company is is giving the advice. It does depend on that. But I think, um, you know, I think this is the second biggest um, problem, right, that we need to solve in cybersecurity. You know, corporate big enterprises throw millions of dollars at cybersecurity. These small, medium-sized businesses throw nothing. Right. Like, and they're not tapped into the ISACs. They don't necessarily have an ISAL. There's not a level of know-how or... There's not even a level of know-how, but there's not a level of, like, information sharing. Like, if you're talking about Wells Fargo, talking to Citibank, talking to MasterCard, talking to Walgreens, talking to Nike, that type of stuff happens. Is the car dealership down the road talking to the restaurant down the road about its point-of-sale terminal? Is the 10-person law firm talking about the or talking to the consultant shop next door. No, that's not happening. So there needs to be some level of information sharing, whether it is just about threats or it's about tools and resources when it comes to protecting them. Yeah, and it seems like breaches are going to happen probably more likely at the small and medium-sized businesses that are vendors to the bigger ones. So it it just makes sense that we sort of take the advice and – and try to clean house there. Right. And I think that it's really, really cool this cybersecurity commission from the last administration has sort of like stayed together to say, hmm, oh, yeah. you know, let's actually, you know, keep this going and, and let's figure some stuff out. Because look, there have been commissions upon commissions upon commissions over the past 20, 30 years when it comes to, I don't know, pick pick your, uh, you know, political firestorm or, or whatever. And everybody gets together and it's a big song and dance and nothing really ever happens. For this to continue on and to keep seeing stuff roll out from the people that were part of the Cybersecurity Commission, I think that's a really, really good thing. It is. It's also a good platform, as we said last week, for a presidential campaign (laughs) for somebody. So if you've developed an artificial intelligence tool capable of predicting the next ransomware outbreak, Microsoft wants to hear about it, and they're willing to pay. More than 300 data scientists, security practitioners, and academics are involved in a challenge to help Microsoft determine which Windows machines are the most vulnerable to malicious software. The competition gives participants three months to develop an algorithm that can predict whether a company running Windows is likely to be infected with the next major virus. 
seems like a good effort, right? Yeah, I think this is pretty cool that Microsoft is trying to do this because I think back to Eternal Blue, the leaked NSA tool that hits um, Microsoft Windows SMB. If Microsoft can figure out an AI tool that, you know, helps companies patch really quickly compared to what they were doing before or just knows where the the holes are or can say, oh, okay, this is the new version of NotPetya and here's what needs to happen on Windows 10 in, you know, yeah. in this part and that part and the other part. I, I don't see how that's a bad thing. I mean, Microsoft Windows is ubiquitous across the board. We still know that even older versions like 7, 8, and XP – are floating around out there on machines that like ATMs and stuff like that. So um, w whatever can be done with the least amount of overhead, if Microsoft just wants to program a computer that can fix all of that, I don't see how that's a bad thing. I, I, I really don't. I think that that is a tremendous addition to what needs to be done in order to protect people that are using Windows. Absolutely. So one piece of funding to talk about this week, Avanon, a startup that protects organizations' cloud applications from cyber attacks, raised $25 million in a Series B funding round. The company's platform protects organizations using software as a service, business services like Slack, G Suite, Office 365, and others by integrating solutions from security brands like McAfee and Symantec and all the others that we are familiar with. The offering is meant to provide organizations with protection from malicious actors in a world where phishing attacks have spilled beyond email into business apps. The investment comes from Stage 1 Ventures, Magna Venture Partners, and Greenfield Partners, which is a division of TPG Growth based in Israel. Uh, Jen, what do you think about this? This is a company I've actually never heard of before. Yeah, they seem to be Israeli-based, and okay. th there are a lot of companies in this space. There are. Like, we, we've yeah. talked about companies like this before, and this just seems to be a trend. It's, okay, you're an organization. You have all of these things that run in the cloud of we have here uh, at our company, at the G Suite Slack. I mean, we run all of that, too. So, um there are a lot of companies out there that do the same thing. This is just where everybody is moving. And, hey, you need a service to protect all of that stuff. So I, it's a crowded space. But, I mean, if they're, if companies are going to still get funding out of it, why would you not start something up like this? I feel like we need a handbook for enterprises that go through um, each of the technologies we actually need um, in telling us sort of the pros and cons of, like, each solution providing that solution. Right. It's just, so, it's so crowded. There's so many – like, how is this better than, like, the 20 other companies that are doing this? That are right, and that funded? gets back to the effort that we were talking about from the commission. I think that that would be an interesting thing to just not only say, uh, you know, here's the threats that you need to look out for, here are the tools that you need to think about, but also, like, kind of separate the wheat from the chaff. Like, oh, okay, well, do I really need all of what this cloud application does? Do I really need uh, endpoint stuff on everything that I do? I mean, I would say the answers to some of that is probably yes. You yeah. could probably, um, you know, err on the side of caution there. But at the same time, there needs to be more just conversation around what exactly all of these tools are doing. What is the difference? And how can they help the small and medium businesses when, you know, it's yeah. time to sell them something. But at the same time, I, you know, I don't think anyone should sort of be on record on saying 
this tool 100% works. This is the one to go with. Because well, right. Yeah, no, nothing's, yeah, nothing's yeah. going to uh, 100% work. A lot of that is going to have to fall to some executives that you have inside your company, whether you're a one-person shop or you're a 10-person shop or whatever. I mean, yeah. you need somebody looking out for your security inside as well. So now to our interview with Chad Seaman. Chad recently published some research into a router protocol that was found to be abused by someone looking to set up an attack. We go on deep dive with Chad on what, if anything, people can do to thwart the attack. Okay, today we are talking with Chad Seaman, a senior researcher at Akamai who just released some really interesting research a couple weeks ago. Chad, thanks for joining us and tell us more about the discovery you recently released research on. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, sure. The discovery, uh, we named it Eternal Silence. It was actually uh, continued research on a previous paper we released called UPN Proxy. Um, this is where the UPnP daemons on consumer routers are listening on the WAN side of the device, not just the, the LAN side, uh, and it allows third parties to, without any authentication or anything really special, uh, to modify that device's NAT tables. Um, <clears throat> what this feeds to is the ability to proxy traffic through the router. Uh, in the initial research, it was through the router to web servers and mail servers and everything else to hide your tracks. Uh, in the more recent research, we discovered that they were pivoting through the router to attack machines behind it. So what happens to the routers and the machines that are exposed? Well, we don't have uh, super clear visibility onto exactly what's happening to them. Um, in order to do that, we would actually have to have a compromised router and we would have to have a machine behind it to get that traffic. So based on the trends that we observed, uh, the attackers were basically going across the entire internal network. So if, you're, you know, if your home network goes from 192.168.1.1 being the router all the way up to .254 being the last addressable space in that address okay. uh, range, they would inject for every single IP across that network and put it to expose port 139 and 45, which are both used for SMB as a service. So it's typically a file sharing protocol. Uh, began on Windows. There were some Linux clients that were produced to, to use it as well to allow intercommunication between Linux and Windows machines for file sharing purposes. Um, but the reason it's been in the news more recently is a couple years ago, the shadow brokers stole NSA exploits called Eternal Blue, which led to one across ransomware stuff. Uh, and then last year, there was the Eternal Red discovery, which was basically that <clears throat> there were bugs in the SMB protocol in the Linux kernel as well. So we're exposing these services they could be attacking Windows or Linux machines, but we don't we don't know which one they're attacking. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how you discovered this, because it seems like this was a setup for something bigger, and you have found something 
that wasn't exactly pushed all the way through in terms of an attack. So I'm wondering how you discovered this. Um, well, SSDP, uh, which is the first part, it's a simple service discovery protocol. It's actually a UDP service. It runs in conjunction with UPnP. This is how devices on the, the LAN <clears throat> essentially broadcast and look for other devices that use UPnP. So with SSDP, it's commonly abused for DDoS um, as a reflection vector. And we noticed that in those reflected packets, there would leak information about the device um, if we were to modify some of the content in those packets that were used to attack people, uh, we could actually communicate to the UPnP daemon directly. We began a research project talking about how this is a problem because it's been over 12 years, I believe, since this was initially discovered, and it's still a problem. Uh, we're still finding devices that are as new as 2015, 2016 with this problem. Uh, as part of that research, we talked about some of the additional concerns of having UPnP exposed and what kind of attacks could be leveraged. And as part of doing that, we actually had to write the tools to, you know, inspect some of these machines. And it just so turns out, you know, we, we had to write the proof of concept to say, hey, this is how you can inject these rules. And then we had to write the proof of concept to say, and this is how we can confirm that our rule was injected properly. So as part of that research, we already had the tool, and then we decided, well, let's scan the internet. Let's let's take our research from in the lab. Let's go out to the internet. Let's see if anybody's doing this. Um, and it turns out in the first pass, uh, we found 65,000 routers that, wow. that pointed out to the internet. And now on the second pass, we found 45,000 routers that had injections that the attacker basically around the firewall, the natural NAT that kind of serves as a firewall, and directly into the LAN to attack machines that live on the, the customer or the, the end user's private networks. So what sort of attackers use this? Is this nation-level stuff, or is this relatively easy to exploit? At this point, we don't know. We really don't know. Um, we suspect that they're using the eternal blue and the eternal red exploits just because of their exposing of SMB uh, across all of these devices. But at the end of the day, um, unless, well, until we actually have one of these sitting captive in a lab, uh, getting these injections in the wild, and then handing them the kind of machine that they want to be talking to before they'll drop an exploit, we, we actually don't have the visibility to know exactly what they're doing. And when you said earlier that, you know, this seems like they, they set up for an attack but never followed through, we honestly don't know if that's the case or not. All we know is that we found the leftover rules um, but it's very possible that they infected machines behind those routers. We wouldn't have visibility into them, and they could be sitting on a botnet that's just out of reach of your traditional Internet scanning. So the UPnP protocol, this has been tied to other attacks. What more needs to be done in order to make the protocol safer? So we're not talking about another tens of thousands of routers found with this sort of problem. 
Uh, I mean, UPnP isn't inherently broken. Um, there are several manufacturers that have rolled out inherently broken implementations. So the, the UPnP daemon is doing what it's supposed to be doing. The SSDP daemon is doing what it's supposed to be doing. Um, in this case, it's just not supposed to be listening on an interface that it's currently listening on. On top of that, it's not doing any kind of sanitation or any kind of checking to make sure that, you know, this, this device that's speaking to me is coming from the internet. You know, they could, if they can't fix the interface issue, which they should be able to, it's super easy, uh, then the next step would be just sanity checking the source of the message you're receiving and then ignoring it if it's not within the, the scope of the network that you expect it to be. Um, there, there's other problems with UPnP historically. There's been a lot of vulnerable stuff with, you know, command injections and other problems, but this requires no exploitation. It's literally just a misconfiguration that a lot of people have made the mistake of rolling out. So what's the remedy here? Patching, more restriction around what ports are being used, something else? Uh, okay, so the fix here is a little more tricky. Uh, if, if you're running UPnP on a device and you don't need it, uh, disable it. Um, if you are running UPnP on a device, especially a vulnerable device, I recommend completely getting rid of that device uh, at this point. Um, there's, there's tons of opportunities, uh, not opportunities, tons of options out there to upgrade to a better device that's probably not going to have these problems. Um, the problem becomes that disabling UPnP in some of these devices in the past was impossible. Uh, the other problem is that even if you disable it, I don't think all machines will actually remove the rules just because the daemon's been disabled. So it's possible it's still maintaining entries in the NAT. So you might actually need to potentially reset the router as well. Um, check for updates, see if there's any patches that came out that maybe address the issue if it is a vulnerable router. And even if all of those things are done, if somebody's already pivoted through and compromised the machine behind the router that's living on your network, you've got to worry about that. So you could completely nuke your router, factory reset it, go to the store and buy a new one, come home, and be protected against future UPnP attacks, but that machine that was exposed and compromised that's living on your network might, you know, be the Trojan horse the whole time. So really, even if you go to your ISPs or you use your ISP modem and decide to ditch that and go out and get something else, it's really just a roll of the dice either way. Yeah, and that's, that's really the scary part about this one. You know, you could, you could, it's, it's difficult for you to know if it even impacted you because of the lack of consumer level tools for dealing with or inspecting these kinds of things. Um, it's, it's a protocol that's made for machines to configure themselves automatically for other machines. So the, the human interface and human interaction was never really considered. Okay. So the fact that it's being abused by humans and it's hard to audit by humans makes it 
particularly tricky to, to identify if it's affected your organization or your home router or whatever. Wow. Really, really interesting stuff. So uh, for our last question, we always like to end our interviews on a random question. I'm wondering if we popped open your recently played list on whatever music app that you know you fancy, what's the, what's the first song that we're finding out? Ooh, ooh, that is a tough one. Hmm, honestly, uh, it would probably be Wagon Wheel by Darius Crowder. And it's a little bit embarrassing because I'm not really a huge country fan. <laughs> but that was definitely the last song that was playing on my Spotify when I got out of the car today. So hey, that's all right. I'm sitting at the top. I'm, I'm not a big country fan either, but this is very random. I've been listening. I've been on a Hootie and the Blowfish kick lately. I don't know what it is. So that's very weird that we have a connection there. Yeah. Anniversary tour. We, yeah, we can't escape go. the rucker, man. We can't yeah. escape the rucker. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chad. Uh, really appreciate you joining us. And uh, we will check in to see if there are any updates in the future. Thanks, Chad. All right. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks again to Chad, and now I will spend the rest of this weekend with Darius Rucker in my head. <laughs> so, Greg, 2019 is on the horizon. Do you have any big predictions for the year? Uh, sure. Companies will be hacked, <laughs> nation states will be behind it, and we'll continue to roll our eyes at bad cybersecurity hygiene despite a mountain of very talented people telling us that they all need to improve. So just like 2018. Yeah, I mean, you got it. I have a feeling we're going to be talking about a lot of the same story angles that we've been talking about all this year. And that's it from us for 2018. You'll hear from us in January. Happy holidays. And as always, stay curious.